Welcome to Cyber Insecurity, brought to you by eLearn Security. I'm Matt Kreischer, Content Specialist at eLearn Security, and as always, I am joined by Neil Bridges and Jeff Goles. Uh, Neil is a cybersecurity veteran of both the uh, Cyber Command at the U.S. Air Force and um, Fortune 100 companies, as well as Price Waterhouse Cooper. He's currently consulting through his company, Root Access Protection. Uh, Jeff is a named account manager with VMware Carbon Black. He has more than 30 years experience in the technology and cybersecurity sectors, uh, helping clients around the world achieve first-class security protocols. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, as always. Glad to be here. So we're going to start with uh, a couple consumer products, one that hit close to home for me as a cyclist. Uh, this past weekend, I... Woke up on Saturday morning to plan my my Saturday bike ride and found that Garmin's uh, website, uh, Garmin Connect, as well as their phishing site were all down. And uh, we learned later that that was due to a wasted locker ransomware attack. Um, on top of that, uh, GED Match, the DNA investigative service that is linked to several DNA companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Dot com. They also suffered a compromise recently that may have opened up sensitive DNA files to hackers. Um, both companies are consumer products that rely heavily on customer goodwill and public relations. In the case of Garmin, the company did not admit to the ransomware play, uh, taking place until after the ransom was allegedly paid and their servers were back online. And with GED Match, an opt-out service that allows consumers to hide their DNA from law enforcement officers was temporarily disabled. Uh, so, Neil and Jeff, how do you think both companies handled these attacks? Well, I definitely, I definitely got to admit, it sounds like Garmin uh, lost the way to their patching server. <laughs> <laughs> I could not wait to do that joke. I could not wait to do a Garmin joke. <laughs> For for they, those listening, they, it landed they just like couldn't a, find it. Nice, Neil. <laughs> they just couldn't find it. For those listening, it landed like a lead balloon. <clears throat> no, the uh, the, the we, we were actually looking uh, looking at your face as you were saying it, and that's really the reason we were laughing. <laughs> that's the only reason, Neil. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Like I, I the, I've been leading up to this. Like ever since Matt sent out the topics, I'm like, I'm doing a Garmin joke. I'm doing a Garmin joke. <laughs> You know, you're, you're you're entering the the part of the show that I'm supposed to be. Uh, you, know, you know, if we're going to depend on me for cyber like intelligence and uh, you know deep dive, we're in trouble. So stay well, in your I, lane, dude. What I do want to look at is not necessarily the deep dive, but really how, especially Garmin responded to the attack because it, it seemed like they were either ignoring it online or deliberately trying to kind of punt down the road until the articles came out that, that showed that they were hacked. Actually, actually, I think I, I call me the conspiracy theorist on this one. Right. But if you look at it, um, you know, there was an OFAC article. So, so the office of uh, Jeff's the money guy, like the office of something, something, something illegal. Right. <laughs> That's the official name. <laughs> That's the official name, Right. Right. I mean, if, if, if they truly did get hit with ransomware and I think it was, it was pretty substantial, um, and they knew that they were going to have to pay the ransom. They perhaps were probably realistically holding on to this this release, pending the legal team, you know, authorizing them to talk about it or having some type of law enforcement, um, you know, come in and 
and, and be a joint partnership to work with them on it. Because if they were going to have to pay a multi-million dollar ransom to an organization like Evil Corp that is on the OFAC list, yeah. um, I can't imagine the amount of red tape and hoops that they would have had to jump through well, to do that. And this brings up a, a major quandary right now. I mean, every company out there that is dealing with, you know, what do we do if and when, right? And it's more a matter of when at this point, because I, I think pretty much anyone who knows what they're doing in security knows that um, it's really a matter of when. What? Um, but I mean, it depends on the situation, how bad it is, like, and what you do as a company. Like, I think you bring up a really good point because when I was at PwC, and I don't know if this is still PwC stance or not, so I'm not speaking for PwC in this, right? But but they were consulting folks at the time on a very, very strict no-pay basis. And so right. when I went to go work for one of the follow-on Fortune 100 companies that I went to go work for, and we were advising you know, the CISO and the CIO on a, a pay, no pay strategy as part of their incident response playbook. Um, you know, they were actually, when we advised them on a, on a no pay strategy, they were like, I'm telling you, if, if the CEO's computer gets ransomware right before they go to the street to announce earnings, they'll pay whatever it takes to get that, that, that computer. Right. Out of the box so they've got earnings. Well, and <laughs> this is not a, well, we're going to hold fast to our, uh, our scruples and, uh, you know, we're not going to pay a ransom. We're going to hold that stance right until we go out of business. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, Garmin had to get back up and running. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think, uh, what's, what's a more interesting story is the, uh, the hacked DNA. Cause you know, I personally think that consumers don't care about security because it never affects them. But Garmin does like to your point, Matt, it, it affected you this weekend, albeit, okay. You, it just meant that you didn't have perfect tracking of the bike ride that you were already going to do. Uh, you you, already you, you couldn't out. get your exact speed stats off that. Yeah. And, and still haven't gotten them yet. Actually. So, but let me, you're going really, really, really fast. That's all I know. Let, let me elaborate on that a little bit, though, especially with Garmin, is, is that Garmin does have a major competitor in Wahoo. Now, Wahoo has made strides to you know, push against Garmin and be their main competitor. And you know, if I'm on marketing, if I'm on Wahoo's you know, marketing department, I, I'm calling you know, my boss and saying, hey, this is an opportunity to talk about like, taking down our biggest competitor or making inroads against our biggest competitor and exploiting that because... You know, security, it, while it doesn't affect the consumer per se, then the word security, especially from a marketing standpoint, is extraordinarily important because it is a buzzword and it's something that you can actually put, you know, concrete evidence behind if you're Garmin's biggest competitor. But if I'm CISO, I'm going to the CIO and the CFO and going, this could be us next if we're not careful. Well, absolutely. Oh, sure. And I mean, y'all, you take a look at the uh, the attack and you're like, okay, this could have happened to anyone. Are we sure we want to put our name out there in lights saying, hey, this didn't happen to us. It happened to someone that doesn't care about you as much as we do. You should come use our service instead. You know, I, I think part of this is the fact that, okay, what is the worst case scenario as a consumer of Garmin? Well, you didn't get well, your speed stats. Well, no, 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 no. See, but DNA is a different story. Read a I, I think that is going to be a, a, a much more interesting uh, uh, piece as, uh, as all of this unfolds for the consumers to say, gee, um, yeah, my DNA is something that I can't get back. I can lose my bike ride data. But sorry, Matt. No. Um, but if you – I can't change my DNA. 
here's but here's where I would disagree with that though, Jeff, because one of the little known parts about the Garmin hack that people aren't talking about right is, you know, the pilot's ability to file flight flight plans and yeah. use Garmin data, which is part of an FAA regulation to ensure safe flight, was also impacted by this, and so. You know, this is only a hop, skip, and a jump away from actually impacting potentially, you know, flights that were in air that that potentially could have had a pretty huge. I would call a pretty huge consumer impact. And but also think of everybody. I think the flight. I think the efficiency. flight plan thing isn't necessarily consumer. That's an enterprise discussion. Of great, I can't use this now. What do I do? They're still going to have to file a flight plan. Uh, they're just going to have to go back to the quote unquote difficult way of doing it before they had an easy app. Yeah. Cause before Garmin happened, people were still filing flight plans. It was just more difficult manual. Yeah. But take something away from somebody that makes their job easier. That's true. Then, you know, that that's, that's where things get a little hairy and a little interesting. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the DNA thing um, because there is this interesting security or excuse me, privacy issue with DNA being out there. Now, conceivably, what are the what are the risks inherent with having your DNA out on, you know, out on the Internet? People can make clones of you. <laughs> nice. Hey, there's no risk. For, no, there's no risk for, of that for us, man. Last week I was spicy. This week I'm a smart ass. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, no, I mean, if you take a look at, you know, uh, risk factors of me as a consumer, right? Uh, I do 23andMe and I'm not calling them out per se, but um, I'm not feeling like I'm in jeopardy of, you know, getting convicted of a crime that I did 40 years ago and, oh, shoot, my DNA. And <laughs> I see you on video not believing me, but I swear that's true. But, you know, where it does hit me is, gee, I'm, you know, 50 plus years old. And uh, what if I want to go get health insurance uh, or whatever, and my DNA is out there and some insurance company can buy all of these DNA records and uh, vet that against, hey, these are, uh, you know, genetic markers for you know, a higher probability of heart disease or brain tumors or whatever, you're uninsurable, right? And so it does impact us. So let me ask you this from a hypothetical situation because we 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 criminally charge individuals who have access to hacked data or in some cases we've talked about, you know, having criminal charges to folks who have access to hacked data. And, and Lord knows it's been a, a gray area from a legal standpoint for the last few years or since doxing and things like that have been a huge deal. Do you Are you suggesting then that maybe corporations – like insurance companies who have access to hacked 23andMe data, you know, should not use that or should face some type of SEC penalty for. I do. Yeah. Hmm. I think that, I I think that the answer to that in, in (laughs) practice, I think the answer to that in practice is going to be how, depending on how good your legal team is though. (laughs) My legal team's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, is it Matt? a new legal team? Is it Matt? <laughs> it is. <laughs> he stayed at a Holiday Inn Express uh, eight months ago, before um, quarantine. 
Before we move on to the next topic, I would just recommend the movie Gattaca because it seems like yes, yes. Jeff is getting very close to the plot of that with, with uh, <laughs> this discussion. That's really about uh, all of my uh, my thinking comes from movies. <laughs> that's also that's also all his knowledge on cyber comes from movies. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Apparently, everything yeah, that nightmares came from the 1994 movie The Net with Sandra Bullock. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that was a good movie. <laughs> Case in point. Exactly. Uh, okay, moving on to Russia, where we we tend to hang out much these days. Uh, Fancy Bear, which is Russia's GRU hacking group, and they're also the organization responsible for the 2016 hacking and leaking campaign that struck the DNC. Uh, They're once again making headlines. Uh, Wired reported earlier this week that a previously unreported campaign by Fancy Bear to target U.S. government organizations and the American energy sector has been ongoing since 2018. Uh, Neil, the FBI claims that there's currently no clear motive for the attacks. So I'm wondering, is this just Russia being Russia or should the security sector be concerned with what's been going on in the past two years in in a way that they weren't already? I I don't think those questions are mutually exclusive of each other. I think that that it is Russia being Russia. And I think the cybersecurity community should absolutely be worried about it. I think um, I think there's some interesting conversations that happen around this circle of like Russia targeting literally anybody, whether it's, you know, vaccine makers, you know, energy sector, whatever the case is, because these are private businesses, right? And and if we say Russia has attacked, you know, energy sector, you know, power company X or, you know, you know, energy business X or some type of private entity like that, or even a vaccine maker, you know, who, you know, you know, their entire entire livelihood is is built around trying to find this vaccine for COVID-19, right? How do you, as a nation, as a United States nation, right, rationalize that you have a nation state attacking a private business? And where's that gray area between this being a nation state attack and espionage versus, you know, a cyber crime and a, and a you know, you know, just normal cyber crime activity? Um, and, and where do you get involved? Where do you have that separation of, of you know, your government responsibilities and private organization responsibilities? Um, and so I think that it's more about what happens in the circle around this conversation than anything else. Well, but you're, th- you're thinking like an American thinks. I mean, we, we think in silos. It's either government or it's personal. It's, uh, you know, business. And they're separated. You know, these, uh, these attacks that we're seeing from, from Russia and China they're they're not necessarily separated. They don't see as clear a distinction as we do. But that's my that's my point though, right? Is that that we go Russia attack business, right? Or China right. attack business. And and so we don't we 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 don't have that that distinction. And so as a result, you know, it's hard to look at those attacks and say, well, if we're going to blame Russia, is this a nation state activity? Or are we going to say that it's this criminal organization, this particular hacker that, you know, is working inside of Russia and therefore we have a face and a name to it that that's actually going to it? And say we're going to say GRU and blame it on the entire government and say that, you know, it's a, it's a nation state. It's all about trying not to say that Russia doesn't do these activities, but it's still propaganda in saying that, you know, we should be fearful of Russia, you know, hacking us. And the cybersecurity community has known for a long time. I mean, again, you, if you listen to me, here on this podcast or on my streams or anything else like that in lectures and everything, I'm like, hey, there is a very, very small distinction between, you know, GRU and somebody running Black Hole or, or Eleanor back in the day at the Russian Business Network. But we, we don't do a good enough job of trying to say, OK, 
you know, GRU's attacking business X and business X, by the way, you've got to stand ready to defend yourself against a nation state attacker. The government's not going to help you with that. Yeah. But it, it, actually, I think it's unfair because it's kind of like, uh, you know, the little guy as a, an enterprise uh, security uh, team is up against the bullies, right? Mm-hmm. You, you've got an unfair attack coming from a nation state to an individual company who's not prepared to defend like a country would be able to defend. Um, and uh, I, I think that that our government needs to actually take a little bit different stance on how these nation states or individuals acting within a nation state uh, are attacking these enterprises um, because they're they're literally stealing our intellectual property and uh, going to truly create a major devastating problem for some of these companies that are, you, you take a look at COVID vaccine, um, they're all in. If, if they don't make a profit because of this, they are potentially going out of business. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think I think that when we start looking at the concept of of Russia or China, right? I mean, those organizations are trying to prove how much better they are than the U.S. on a day in and day out basis. And so, right. yes, if they can hack in, I mean, they don't make a distinction. And and I I know it's not on our list of topics to talk about today, <laughs> but I know that we I know that we chatted about it amongst the three of us, right? Those two Chinese hackers who were recently indicted by the U.S. They right. weren't directly employed by the PLA. They weren't. PLA uniformed or anything like that. They were, you know, civilian hackers that were asked by the government to do hacking operations on behalf of the the, the Chinese government. And now, if you happen to ruin some entity in the U.S., cool, you know, yeah. two thumbs up. Well done, guys. Right, right, exactly. And if you don't do it, by the way, we're going to put a bullet in your head. <laughs> oh, there's the there's that, there's that you know. So, yeah, let me ask you this to follow up on something you said earlier. What does that change in st- stance from the U.S. government? Look like if you're a hospital in a in a medium sized city that is trying to protect their personal data from, you know, a, a nation state attack. What, what how does that how does that change in stance help the IT team or the CISO in in that organization? So so in a complete and total pipe dream universe, because this will never happen in our democracy, and this isn't a bash against our democracy whatsoever, right? But you know, there needs to be open intelligence lines between the intelligence community that the United States government employs. So like, you know, director of national intelligence, you know, NSA, you know, CIA. Right. And, and if there is if there is an imminent threat, so very similar to like, you know, the U.S. Cyber Command, you know, going to Twitter about this F5 vulnerability, I can almost bet you a steak dinner somewhere, right, or a nice bottle of red wine, that they knew that that vulnerability was being exploited for months, if not years, prior to that, right? We need to keep backing that up, and we need to keep backing that transparency up on on that type of intelligence so that not just the hospitals, but people who have security operations teams can get intelligence in an actionable fashion in a quick fashion to be able to defend themselves against those types of attacks instead. And I've been on the recipient of this multiple times where I get a phone call from the FBI where the FBI shows up in my office and they're like, I can't tell you anything, but here's a piece of paper with an IP address on it. Need you to go look through your logs and see if you see any, see anything you know regarding that IP address. So there's a severe lack of transparency because our democracy doesn't, allow for that transparency between the intelligence community and the private sector. But I think there are programmatical things that could be Please don't say in regard. 
No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about uh, like uh, uh, the the NSA and uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, uh, put out what I think is a pretty good roadmap, right? And Matt, I'm probably stealing a little bit of your thunder. Um, and, Steal away. Uh, okay, um, but you know they they literally talked about uh, uh, operating uh, technologies, the OT environment that uh, needs to be patched, um, and some critical pieces of. Uh, uh, exposure that need to be addressed. Uh, and they laid out a pretty decent roadmap for what should be done. It it but doesn't detail all, all of the things, but it, you know, it talks about a six step process here. Of, so uh, Jeff, why know, don't we go ahead and move on to that subject then and kind of, uh, you know, wrap it, wrap it into this one. Um, and what Jeff is referring to is the NSA and cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency released an advice again, really fast. No, uh, CISA, which I will not. There you go. Released an advisory on July 23rd relating to critical infrastructure uh, operational technology, and like Jeff said, they they implemented a or they released a six step plan. This is a, a you know firm structure of implementation, um, but essentially they're warning, warning private industry that nation state actors are willing to exploit companies to destabilize you know national security. So. You know, Jeff, I, I do kind of want to, I didn't want to cut you off, but I do want to kind of morph into talking about this framework in the, in kind of in the way that we were discussing uh, Russia. But, yeah, but well, in, in the framework, ahead. real quick though, before you do that, Jeff, I, and, and I know you, you're, you're, you're looking for the soapbox so you can stand back on it. I see that look <laughs> on your face. <laughs> I don't think a framework. on it, by the way. I, I know I could tell it. It's like, it's like, muted. no, 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 I'm going to kick this one. I'm going to kick this one out from under you frameworks are not the same as information sharing, right? And in that framework, it doesn't talk about that. Yeah. What? Holy, do we, I know. Recording with that one, right? I agree with you. So, so the framework is, well, yeah, I figured it was (laughs) right. I'll send you a check. Yeah. But, but when you ask like what could be done, Matt, I think it's, it's really about that information sharing. I think, I mean, the government's been putting out frameworks for years. What do you think NIST is, right? I mean, NIST is a perfect example of a framework that the government's been putting out. And, you know, they've even tried, NERC has tried to force energy companies to regulate against NIST. Um, CMMC, you know, the D- DOD contractors are now being held to, you know, is based largely off of CIS 20 and NIST as well. But frameworks aren't the same as getting intelligence to decision makers faster. And it should be said that NIST has seen success. I mean, a lot of companies take that framework in how they build their IT or uh, their security teams. Are you NIST, saying that NIST is, hasn't done a good thing by raising the watermark? I have not said that NIST has not done a good thing. What I've said is that a framework doesn't get get information to decision makers quickly enough to defend against attacks. NIST is a strategy intelligence is actual data on the battlefield. Totally if, agree. If, if we're talking about Russia and North Korea and China, and we have we have actionable intelligence at the highest levels of our government that's saying that Russia is hacking into this hospital or this clinic right now to steal this vaccine, that is intelligence that some security team could use to stop that attack. But and you're talking you're talking about this from a uh, a very, very focused lens perspective. How so? I, I, well, I mean, hey, we've got an active threat right now. You need to go look at this IP address, for instance, from the FBI, right? That's a very, very finely focused uh, target that you need to go investigate. Very, very uh, uh, you know, small scope 
of what you need to do, right? What I'm talking about is, you know, we as a government see the vulnerability within OT and legacy operating systems being a major problem. We think you need to, uh, you know, go bolster your security on those things. So what what they've done here is provided kind of a a targeted recommendation to raise the water level of security around our country by saying, hey, here's a a framework of how you should go about doing this. I agree that a framework is not necessarily the be-all, end-all, and it doesn't solve world hunger. What it does do, however, is it allows for the common security practitioner to understand what our government is saying is a prioritized threat, right? It's a prioritized area of focus within the uh, legacy operating systems of, of OT, and you need to do the following things in order to bolster the security of those things. Once you do that, move on to the second thing. What I, I think- would love to see is the government say, okay, here's a primary, secondary, tertiary uh, kind of list of what should be uh, addressed in order. With, with all due respect, I think you and I are saying the same thing, which is oftentimes the case. We, we're oftentimes attacking the same problem. Well, let's argue it. Let's, well, argue, let's it. argue it. Let's argue it anyway. Right? Right? I'm going to argue with you. Does that mean you owe me the wine and steak dinner? No, 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 because we both still disagree because I'm arguing with you on it. For everybody listening, I'm actually wearing a referee's jersey right now. <laughs> um, I agree in sense that a framework is a strategy, right? But, you know, as with cyber, right, let's let's call a spade a spade, right? Cyber war is happening every day. Every incident response team that is listening to this, every CISO that is listening to this right now, they have an incident response team that is on the front lines conducting cyber warfare right now every day on a day-to-day basis. They are fighting against the bad guys every day. I don't disagree with that, but how many organizations have you talked to who don't have a resiliency plan already identified for their OT? They don't have an exercisable uh, incident response plan. They don't have an ability to harden that environment and to you know, identify and vet out those uh, those vulnerabilities. How many of those organizations are not even doing the basic blocking and tackling that the government has already said, okay, according to our active threats, you need to go do that. So if and they're then, not doing that, then they need to refocus on uh, doing some of these things because they literally just came out and said, NSA said, hey, uh, we see this as a major problem, i.e. go solve it because this is probably your number one vulnerability in your organization. And and make no mistake, I do I do truly believe that what NSA and CIS are trying to do is they're trying to figure out ways to communicate to private business in a way that doesn't compromise the the channels that the intelligence community has. But I still I still argue that you've got two different tracks, right? You have the strategic track which does say that yes, day in and day out, or I mean uh, from a strategic perspective, you have to figure out a way to solve your OT problems. You've mm-hmm. got to solve for legacy operating systems, for, you know, PLCs that are doing ladder logic that can't even handle an NMAP scan, you know, you know, let alone, you know, any of these other heavy traffic loads or things like this on a network. Yes, strategically, you have to figure that out. But I think what is also missing is this concept that we have cyber activity that's happening day in and day out. And so tactically with the boots on the ground, there needs to be a better mechanism for getting actual intelligence to the boots on the ground so that they can actively defend against threats. Because if you look at Garmin, uh, look at Twitter when we have the Twitter conversation, look at 
you know, any other cyber attack that's out there. And, and without calling too many companies out specifically by name, most of them were probably in the midst of their cybersecurity strategy. They probably had a three-year to five-year plan or were at least in, you know, in part on their way on a three to five year plan of doing something from a cybersecurity perspective. I, I yeah, and then they did a right turn to say, oh, hey, we need to reformat all of this in the NIST framework way of thinking so that we can tell our board, oh, yeah, we're already doing this. Well, but there's there's that. But then they also have to t- make a right turn as well because then they get hit with a cyber attack, right, because they didn't get a piece of intelligence that if they had gotten, you know, 24 hours before, they probably could have stopped the cyber attack. Yeah. So, I mean, ideally, what you're talking about is great. Raise the watermark of your uh, your vulnerable environments and do the recommendations that the government lays out um, lays out for us. And then what would be really nice is to have a line of communication from the intelligence community into each security product of each organization to ingest that new threat intelligence so that they're proactive instead of reactive. Or I mean, use ideal RSS feed of, of things going on. Or use an ISAC, right? Or use one of the information sharing organizations like FSI. Like, or I was just going to say, doesn't this already exist? But they don't get the feed. They don't get they don't get actual intelligence. They rely on community based intelligence, right? I've been in FSI SAC and NHI SAC and, and NERC ISAC and, and things like that. And they all rely on each other in the community. And then the tough part about that, and we had this challenge with one of the healthcare companies that I worked at before, was getting our legal team to agree that it was okay for us to share intelligence that we were seeing on our network so that it didn't you know, have any potential legal ramifications on it. So there's like multiple layers that even the community has so, to deal with. To so that. we start, we started this uh, with uh, uh, Garmin probably having to delay things because of lawyers. And now we're coming <laughs> right back to lawyers again. <laughs> so Matt, I, I'm, Matt. Seeing, I'm seeing a theme. Dude, it's where things tend to go. So um, <laughs> since we're, we're on this theme of how nation state attacks affect private industry, I want to move on to the Lazarus group. Um, so the Lazarus, Lazarus Group is connected to North Korea. They have developed a new malware framework that they're using to infiltrate corporate networks and steal sensitive data. Uh, the security firm Kapersky uh, first reported what they are calling now calling the Mata framework, um, and then Securelist published a handy visualization of how Mata is is organized. Uh, it reminds me of almost like a corporate infrastructure with developers and packers acting as the the top level C-suite and delivering downstream products and information to red teams, bot masters, and support. Uh, It also seems like an organization built on plausible deniability with each silo only contacting the teams that they're working with directly. So, Neil, are you impressed? Are you scared? Are you a bit of both or none of the above? Is it, is it, is it, anti-nationalist for me to like clap at North Korea and be like, welcome to, you know, at least five years ago worth of hacking frameworks. I mean, you know, this is, this is an organization where, you know, maybe I'm showing a little bit too much from, from our side in the military. But when I was, when I was working in, in us cyber command, it was no joke. We laughed at North Korea and we've laughed at North Korea as they've grown up in the, the, the hacking business. And I'm using my air quotes there for, for pe- folks who can't see me um, just because of their continued lack of sophistication. And on top of that, you know, you could tell that their motives are almost 100% financially driven. The sanctions have forced them into, you know, you know, attacking things like the Bangladeshi, you know, SWIFT payment system where, you know, they almost made it made away with a, a billion dollars, which isn't something to, to, to shy about. But, 
you know, I think even even a lot of the work that they're doing now, it, you know, they, I think I saw a new report on the Lazarus Group where they're targeting, you know, Magecart, which again is like a, a, a three to five year old, you know, TTP that that skimmers were using to to steal credit card information off of uh, off of you know payment card websites and things like that. So, you know, th- their entire methodology is around getting money into the 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 kingdom because you know they're under heavy sanctions. So, you know, congratulations for for getting with the rest of us. So one thing I'll say on that though is that while they are behind with with their motivation being financial, this is important for private industry, especially in the United States. I mean, North Korea might not be able to deploy a full nation state attack against a, a, another country, but you know, with people lacking the proper patches, with with vulnerabilities, and everything it, it, it does present that new sophistication does present dangers for American companies. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I see Jeff wanted to chime in there. I, I think the only thing I would add to that is I, I use the lack of sophistication to say that the companies that haven't been able to stop modern ransomware attacks, you know, probably aren't any more prepared to stop something, you know, as, as immature as Lazarus group. What I find interesting about this article is the fact that this is no different than just a normal organization. What is very different, though, is how the different divisions, the uh, uh, the ones coming up with the uh, uh, the ransomware itself, uh, the packers, the people who are uh, posting it and finding the way in, and the social engineers, et cetera, et cetera, and then the people coming away with the uh, uh, the, the actual ransomware. Uh, success, right? The the analyst uh, who's stealing the the documents or how they're going to monetize this. Um, all of those individuals are very very siloed. So yes, it's an organization, um, but it's an organization like you are talking plausible deniability. It uh, it seems like uh, they've got their one area of expertise, and then they hand it off to the next group, and they don't have any clue where it goes from there, right? And so. Um, what's interesting is, is there's some master plan to come up with how this organization will go from point A to point Z, and there's you know 25 steps along the way in order for to, this to be successful, and each one is doing their job really really well because that's all they do. They are it's an assembly line. I think what you're talking about, and, and I think, you know, and, and maybe I, I went a little too cynical right off the bat, which is not uncommon for me, right? But I, I would agree with you, and I'm glad and we got this one on tape, too. We're going to have to, like, tally up all the you know times that either one of us say that we agree with each other. Um, you know, when you look at, and I, maybe, Matt, I don't know if it's possible in the podcast or not to include the length of the one that we're talking about so people can see the chart that we're referencing. But the chart that we're referencing you know, really talks about a level of compartmentalization that when when you look at and, you know, any nation state like the United States is no example, no, no, no exception to that rule. Right. You've got you know, cyber command, you've got, you know, you know, logistics, you've got, you know, um, even if you look at the forces, right, where the, the army usually handles like ground forces and base buildups and the Marines are like the, the, the trooper, you know, the troops on the front line. You've got air command for for the Air Force and things like that, where you have compartmentalization. Nobody really knows what everybody else is doing or what everybody else's mission is. But from 
you know, a, a higher level joint force commander perspective, they're pushing down strategy to task to the individual, you know, you know, battlefield commanders. And I think that that's what that that picture really articulates, right, is that you have compartmentalization happening inside the Lazarus group, um, whereby, you know, nobody knows what it is everybody else has got going on. But th- this aligns to our earlier conversation that all of these attacks are, you know, run like a military organization. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's an operation that is a, a nation state by design, right, uh, whether they are or aren't. Um, and uh, the reality is you've got all of these different groups that are focused on working together without knowing what each other is doing, right? Well, and, and in some of my talks that I've given in the past where I talk about like Neil's levels of hackers, right, where I talk about level one being script kitties, level two being cyber criminals, and level three kind of being equal to the state-sponsored attackers, you know, I make the distinction that between level two and level three isn't writing zero days. It isn't... You it's know, organizational. Having, it's organizational. It's having <laughs> yeah. strategy to task, you yep. know, and, and that's really... And so what, if anything, what I would say is that, you know, Lazarus Group, North Korea is graduating finally out of level two and maybe into that bottom part of level three where they actually have a true, you know, joint force, you know, military strategy task type uh, organization that's going on for them. But don't you think that uh, as they get further evolved and now that they've got this organizational structure, that they're going to get a lot more sophisticated just because... You know, the developers are just doing development. They're not doing anything else other than that. And that's their area of expertise. And the analyst doesn't have to worry about any of that stuff. So they focus on how to turn whatever information they're gathering into a more monetizable, uh, you know, commodity, right? And so you've got, you know, the levels of sophistication, I think, uh, are not just in the levels of attack, but it's how they can leverage that attack into something that's uh you know worth more money i i completely i completely agree and and it's been it's been awesome over my career right to watch not that again not to sound like <laughs> it's been crazy. awesome to watch north korea just get so much better <laughs> it, it is because i mean i'm telling you i watched them when they were getting caught day in and day out because they were using the metasploit framework you know which is you know publicly available like anybody in the world can go out and download metasploit and start trying to hack stuff with metasploit today right um, I watched them go from that to now they have a strategy to task compartmentalization structure. Um, you're absolutely right. I think I, I would say five years, right? Maybe less, maybe two and a half, right? Just because I think once you hit a certain strategy task or you know organizational structure, you really start to skyrocket on your capabilities. Um, so that, would, that was that was where I was going with this question, though. I mean, right now they're just starting to hit mainstream, if you will, on capability. Yeah. How soon before we're talking about North Korea, who now has a ton of motivation? I mean, China has a lot of motivation just because they hate us. Uh, North Korea hates us even more, and they're desperately in need of money. Um, I think think – How long? I think the money part is what's going to hold them back though, right? Because, I mean, with the advances that, you know, 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 SWIFT is making after their Bangladeshi attack and, you know, some of the stuff that's happening and, and, you know – you know, the anti-money laundering laws and things like that. I, I think North Korea then has to channel their internal creative side to try to figure out ways to bypass, um, you know, some of the, the financial. Yeah. So it's that laundering that's going to stop them. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's that that's laundering that's going to stop them. And if you actually look, some of their attacks not only have been targeting like the Bangladeshi Bank, they've been targeting cryptocurrency exchanges. Yeah, and trying that to, solves that problem. That solves that problem, right? They can start to launder, launder money through cryptocurrencies and things like yeah. that. So I think, I think if anything, if they get more advanced on the organizational front, that's fine. 
I'd be curious slash interested to see what type of loopholes, if they can channel their inner creativity, they can find in the financial system. Well, it, it sounds like interesting days are ahead with with North Korea kind of gaining in sophistication, and, and uh, especially if they're going to keep targeting American con- uh, companies. Gentlemen, that's our our show today. Uh, if you <laughs> if you uh, I got more look- questions. Yeah. <laughs> Save them for next week, Jeff. Okay. <laughs> uh, for the latest episodes, subscribe to INE's the IT Experts Network wherever you get your podcasts, or check out um, eLearn Security's YouTube page, and I will include the link to the article on uh, the matter framework that Neil was referencing earlier. So if, you, if you're listening, go ahead and check that out as well. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.